You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Molly Katzen is the creator of the Moosewood Cookbook. Her new book is The Vegetable Dishes I Can't Live Without. Thank you for joining me, Molly. Thank you very much. Molly, this Moosewood Cookbook, which I confess I had never heard of until I picked up this new book, is uh, 30 years old this year. How does that feel? Uh, it's surreal. It's just, you know, it's, it's 30 years old in this version, the version that's published by 10 Speed Press, but I self-published it before that. For really? several years, so it's actually more like 33 and a half. Boy. You know, it's an adult. It's like almost a middle-aged adult. Yeah, it could have kids in high school. I know, it could. <laughs> Maybe it does. <laughs> I'm sure there are kids in high school who are using it. This book really changed the way a lot of us ate. And back in the 70s, what was it like for you to just strike out and write a cookbook? Well, you know, it didn't. It wasn't um, with the... I didn't write it thinking it was going to be used by people I didn't know. It was <laughs> really? very casual, which that hand lettering there really is my handwriting. It really is your yeah, handwriting? That is I, was... my, I wrote it out, and every time there was a mistake in it, I had to either put a little um, piece of white uh, label on it or do white out or you know, cut and paste. Wow. Which, and it was, it was a very genuinely personal book that I wrote for my family and friends. And I had no idea it would ever, anyone, anyone would pay money for it or it would ever get used by someone I didn't know. And wow. I think I would have done it very differently had I known that it would sell millions of copies. It's just totally, still, I still don't quite get it. Here you are. It's 1977. You've got this book. You, you publish it. And why the hand-drawn illustrations? Why, why did you pursue that? I was actually an art student. Mm-hmm. I was a serious art student, and I went all the way through art, art school. Wow. Yeah, I was a, a student at the, um, first at Cornell University in the Art and Architecture School, and then I got a degree from the San Francisco Art Institute, and I was a classical painter, and always in drawing classes and always keeping sketchbooks. And so to sit and draw and sketch and doodle was my just sort of my way of being in the world. And But I also always cooked in restaurants. Since I was 15, I cooked in restaurants to support myself. Well, at first, when I was 15, I didn't support myself, but it was my after-school job. And then in college, it was my job, and eventually it was how I was supporting myself while painting. So um, sketching out the recipes or writing out the recipes with sketches, it was like a personal note every time I gave someone a recipe. And I also had journals that I kept with just notes from what I was cooking, and I'd illustrate those. So it just kind of rolled off my hand. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, now, like a nervous tick or something. <laughs> <laughs> Your recipes are vegetarian, mm-hmm. and how did you first become aware of what you, know, what you were eating as a diet? When did you start thinking about what you eat is anything other than mom give me food and when i was a child our household was relatively kosher you know there are different degrees of kosher there are people who are like really really kosher who would not agree that there are any degrees but we had a kosher kind of leaning household so i always had a sense from the time i was aware of food at all of a couple couple things from my jewish background one is that meat has to pass a few tests before it's you know acceptable so Guilty until proven innocent. So my mother would splurge on cuts of meat to make sure they were the right, you know, they'd been blessed or, I don't know, they came from clean sources. So they, the sense of clean food um, was instilled in me very early because of that and also a kind of healthy skepticism about meat right out of the gate. 
Then the other thing that came from my Jewish upbringing was a sense of ritual and uh, specialness about food and how food could really transform a room full of people and, and give it a sacred kind of aura right very early because all the Jewish holidays are, are food-oriented. Or They're all feasts of one time. Even the, even the fast day is, is spent planning how you're going to break the fast. It's all about food. So um, I had the, the, the kind of one-two punch of meat is kind of, you know, needs to have a very high bar to be, you know, acceptable, and that food has the power to make everyone in the room feel like they're in an altered for the better state. Made it, it was a tremendously profound impression on me as a tiny kid. And, and so your first job was as a as a cook. Well, yeah, but I mean, flipping hamburgers in a you know mall kind of diner thing. Sorry, I'm playing with your wires here. Um, but then where the vegetable part came in is mm-hmm. that I actually I loved vegetables when I was a kid, but I didn't really experience fresh vegetables. I my mother was a kind of so-called modern cook mm-hmm. of the era, and most of the vegetables I encountered were. Oh, I had come from the freezer. Mm-hmm. Or the salads were iceberg lettuce and hothouse tomatoes, but I still loved them. When I did discover real fresh vegetables, uh, green beans out of a garden and, and things like that, I was already a teenager. And then it was it just got even better because I liked them to begin with. And I just fell in love with them. So the combination of suspecting meat and being crazy about vegetables led to my creating many recipes for veg- vegetarian food. Although I've never been a strict vegetarian. Uh, I've never, when people start to ask me about vegetarianism, I kind of draw the line because it's not really my bent. I don't care whether people eat meat or not, mm-hmm. I, but I really care whether they eat vegetables or not, as in I want everyone eating a lot of them. And this new book really gives us a lot of ways to do that, doesn't it? It's, it I hope so. I hope so. One of the things that I realized before I wrote this book and one of the things that led me to write it was how a few people eat vegetables at all, even vegetarians. I would meet vegetarians or vegetarian children of friends of mine for whom being a vegetarian had nothing to do with eating vegetables. It had everything to do with not eating meat. It was a negative statement about meat, but it wasn't a positive statement. Yeah, it was like anything but meat, you know, pizza, fine, nachos, bagels, potatoes, you know. Being a vegetarian for a lot of these kids means go to McDonald's and just get the fries. So I'm starting to think, whoa, <laughs> I really want people, and even foodie friends of mine or sophisticated friends of mine who you know know from really good food, go to their house for dinner and there might be a small salad, but there won't be a preponderance or even a really presence of vegetables on the plate. So if I have any mission, it's to, it's to, get, it's to change that. I want everyone moving over whatever they're already eating. You don't, you don't have to join a new club. <laughs> you have to have, know the secret handshake. It's just move it over and put more vegetables on your plate, and then I'm happy. Now go home, leave you alone. <laughs> but I want you having, um, I want you having many, many vegetable dishes to choose from. Well, well, the kind of foods that we can get these days has really changed since the Moosewood Cookbook, hasn't it? Very much. I mean, I used to have to call my mother after I moved to California, which I did in '81, just four years after Moosewood was published, uh, testing recipes in Berkeley. I would call my mother, who lived in, way up in Rochester, New York, way up in northern New York State, to see what was available in her grocery store in February, because I didn't want to only write for people who lived um, in California, although that would be really easy. It would be. <laughs> yeah, it would be fun, but it's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that uh, we're all much more aware of organic food these days, could you talk a little bit about organics, how we should choose them, how you think they should be defined, how... When we go to the store, we see so much stuff that claims to be organic. Is it's it? It's very or? confusing. And lately, um, the question I'm, I'm being asked a lot is, what's the priority? If 
first of all, what's the priority among the following choices? Local, sustainably raised, transitional, which means they didn't spray it, but it's not certifiably organic or organic. So there are those, those four things to juggle. Then, just under the organic banner alone, if you can't afford an entirely organic kitchen and you want to eat as organic as possible, what's the hierarchy? Like, if you can only buy three organic things, what are the most important, what are the most, what are, what are the ones that if they're, sp if they're sprayed with pesticide are the most egregiously poisonous? <laughs> this is getting really <laughs> disgusting. Um, so there's a lot to sort out. And it was really interesting a few months ago. This is such a, this is becoming a real mainstream conversation. I wish it were even, even more mainstream. But a few months ago on the cover of Time magazine, did you see it? There was an no. like, apple. And the question was uh, something about local or local and sustainable produce on the cover of Time. Wow. I know. That was a big wow. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think personally that um, buying from local growers is the most important thing you can do. The closest to home, sustainable, mm -hmm. local. Um, it will be well-meaning. It will not have traveled thousands of miles. It will, will not have burned uh, many gallons of fossil fuel to get to you. It will be fresher. So that's my preference. Organic would be is ideal. And the, the definition of organic is being played with all the time. It's kind of... Um, there's a lot of uh, commercial influence trying to put pressure on what that organic standard is. There was a big USDA uh, opinion period uh, for the second time around. It's, it's gone through the USDA twice. And it was probably, I think it, it garnered a record number of, of letters just from you, people, like you and me, normal mm -hmm. people, caring very much about what the organic standards are. And is it going to include this? And is it gonna, what does the soil have to you know go through in order to be certifiable? It's, it's very technical, but now... Um, that organic is so in, and Safeway has an organic, whole organic line, and, and right. Walmart is going to start having, or it hasn't already. So then th there's this kind of almost Orwellian situation where <laughs> you've got organic, but it's being grown on, on an industrial scale. So what? Uh, how how does that work? I mean, perhaps it's not being sprayed with pesticides, but what kind of machinery is being used? Um, how are the crops being rotated? Is it monoculture? Is it... Uh, you know, a variety of things being grown. Is it being grown responsibly? We don't know. Because the organic standards simply say this, this, and this, not that, not that. And there are many ways to incorporate those, you know, requirements and still have, you know, something that's pretty destructive. Uh, it's, 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 very, it's very complicated. I mean, I'm so backwards looking when it comes to food. I just want everyone to grow their own vegetables or, you know, I, I wish the family farm were in a healthier state. It sounds like our best bet is just to go to the local produce stand. Our best bet is to go to the local produce stand, to buy from the farmers at farmers markets, and to follow very closely the farm bill legislation. Unfortunately, it just it's just rounding up. It's every five years, and it's just finishing up, and the, the farm bill that's being passed now is not the best. They're, it's not great, but we have now five years to study up and learn about the farm bill and try to influence the legislators to have there be safer and better food available. Um, I think one of the better websites to learn about that is foodsecurity.org. And this brings us to food and politics because it seems there's, they become more intertwined of late. Well, yeah, it's um, it's very political. It's, it's economics. Uh, one way to bring it home is bring it home. You know, try to grow things in pots on your windowsill. How is that too uh, idealistic? I uh, no, no. It's oh, good. It, it's a good answer. It, but for people like me, it's 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 unrealistic because mm -hmm. if I touch it, it might turn brown. Oh, if you I have come, 
you have the touch of uh, death, yeah. so to speak. <laughs> well, then buy from your farmer's market. Yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my solution. One of the things I like about the recipes in this book, and I prepared two of them, is Yay. that they are easy to do, and, and you seem to focus on ingredients we might actually either A, have to hand, or B, be able to buy at a regular grocery store without, like, having to travel and find something exotic and peculiar. That's one of my. Um, that's one of the things I require of myself when I write a recipe is that um, the re- the ingredients all be pretty much obtainable through normal grocery stores that most people can get to. Otherwise, I'm just writing. I'm, I'm preaching for the choir. So um, that's very important to me, and I also know that for most people, the biggest issue about cooking is time. And if the recipe has one or two ingredients too many, if it looks too long on the page, I know people will not make it. They might think the book has a pretty cover. They might want to buy it. They might think some of my writing, I hope they like my writing. I hope they like the pictures in the book that I drew. But I I don't, I mean, for me, if they don't make the recipes, I'm upset. (laughs) I want people to cook this food and eat it. So it's almost like I feel like a coach. And so I'm trying to figure out ahead of time how can I make this dish as good as possible without compromising the food on the one hand, but not um, overwhelm people with too much ingredient, you know, too much of an ingredient list, too much work, um, something that's a little too exotic. So, I, and also I, I do feel, and it is my experience, that just adding a couple touches of really nice seasoning, roasted garlic or a really good fruity olive oil or a roasted nut oil or a superb vinegar, little sprinkling of uh, dried fruit can go really nicely with, say, a very bitter green. The Italians um, sometimes will toss in some raisins to a dark, bitter, you know, escarole dish. So um, those tiny touches make a huge difference. One thing, I, when I made the food, it was really quick to make. I was Good. able to make two things at once. I made the gratin, and once I had that done, I put that in the oven, and then I started the stir-fry, and I was able to get everything done in about 30 Five minutes from the time I like started to the time we, you know, I poured it on the plate. That's good. That's what I'm hoping people will do. Um, The gratin, the one you you mentioned, is made with spinach and artichoke hearts. And when in my recipe test, I did it all frozen. You can use frozen vegetables very well. Not all of them, but some of them will just fine. You know, we don't want to be too purist. And I was kind of shocked, actually, when I saw the frozen artichoke hearts. And did I you thought, use them frozen? Yes, absolutely. Did you use frozen spinach, too? No, actually, we have a good fresh spinach. You know, they're pretty, much in, they're pretty much interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Um, 10 ounces of those fresh, you know, baby spinach leaves and 10 ounces of frozen. I'm not saying it's always ideal or mm-hmm. okay to use the frozen, but many times it is. And if that is what it's going to take to get people eating green, then do it. Could you talk about some of the kitchen tools? Because I could go to the our local store and spend two thousand dollars, you know, in a in a half an hour. I know. And, I could too. Is it worth it? I have a lot of um, pots and pans that I got gifted to me by various. You know, when you're a cookbook author, they all want you using their their product, and I use pretty much one and a half pans all the time. <laughs> really? Let me word that differently. I use two pans. Most of the time, but I'd say 75% of the time, I'm using just one pan. I just have a favorite pan. I have a favorite knife, and I have my tongs, my spring-loaded tongs, and I just always I cook with tongs rather than a spoon. I have, I have the pan handle in my left hand. I have the tongs in my right hand, and, it, and it's flying around. Um, but that one pan is my favorite pan. It's a kind of big, wide, shallow sa- saute pan, and I have my knife. And my knife might, might not be the same as your knife. But I, I think that for most people, the barrier 
between eating vegetables, cooking and eating vegetables, and not cooking and eating vegetables is a knife. I call it the knife block because um, somehow we're afraid of cutting. But if we can bond with a knife and find one that really feels good in our hand, no one can tell you what knife is right for you. It has to feel good to you. And if you love that knife and if it's really sharp and you hear that whooshing noise when it, you know you kind of throw it through an onion, it, it becomes a, like <laughs> become obsessed, like you're looking for things to cut. So rather than being blocked about the idea of cutting vegetables, it's like, <laughs> give me vegetables, let me cut them <laughs> now. <laughs> now. Now it makes a big difference if the knife is sharp. How oh, do you keep your knife sharp? I sharpen it on a wet, I have a whetstone and I have a steel. Okay. And I'm constantly whacking it around on the steel and, you know, ro- rolling it around on the whetstone. But most farmer's markets also have sharpeners, knife sharpeners, guys in trucks or women in trucks who sit there waiting for you to come with your scissors or your knife. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's it, neat. It is the most wonderful feeling to come home with a set of sharpened knives. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it makes I mean, a huge sounding, difference. It might be sounding kind of perverse, but it is a great feeling. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about the just the format of, of the book because it's really nice and easy to... It's easy to use. I was able to take it to the grocery store, kind of lay it in the cart, and have get make sure I got all the ingredients, which is a often a showstopper. And also, I was able to read it very easily. So, how much control you did you letter this book too? I did. I lettered oh. it, and then at a certain point, <laughs> I started lettering it. And then I it was going to take too long, and my hand was also kind of aching because mm-hmm. I was having some repetitive repetitive stress. You don't really want to hear about my. Um, hand problems, but I don't know what it is. So anyway, so what I did this time, I've tried this before, and in the past it hasn't worked, but this time it really worked. I designed a font based on my hand lettering, so I wrote out my my personal alphabet several times, and we kind of averaged the letters and made a font so that the general, the text in the recipes, a lot of it is set with a font, but it's the font that came from my hand lettering, and then all of the titles of the recipes, and you'll you'll notice they're all different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Each one is different. Those are all done by hand, and all the illustrations, the drawings of vegetables are all brand new and done by hand. Wow, that's incredible. I love doing that. (laughs) My daughter, who's 16, was looking at me like I was crazy. Like, I would go down to my favorite produce market, come back with a bag of, like, eight just eight leaves of, you know, braising mix. <laughs> you know, the braising mix with the little little escarole leaves and a little red red mustard and the tatsoi. And i just get these single little leaves and I'd be drawing one of them at a time. <laughs> We've been speaking with Molly Katzen. Her new book is The Vegetable Dishes I Can't Live Without. Thank you for joining me, Molly. I had a great time. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.